Welcome to StartupCTO.io, the podcast where Miles Mathias and Kevin Owaki interview engineering leaders about management, startups, and software, because your CS degree didn't teach you to lead. And now, StartupCTO.io. I'm here with my co-host, Miles. Hey. And today, as our guest, we have Travis Kimmel, the CEO of Git Prime. Welcome, Travis. Thanks. Great to be here. Good to have you. Could you tee us off by telling us uh, the founding story of, of Git Prime? Yeah, so Git Prime started um, back in the day. I was working at another startup as an engineering manager um, and started making by hand a bunch of reports in Excel to kind of show what was happening in engineering. Um, initially, this was me hand collating stuff from GitHub and our Git repositories to kind of demonstrate um, how things outside of engineering affect uh, the happenings in engineering. Um, and you know, early on, this was all super manual. Um, that gig sort of wrapped up, and at the end of it, I thought, "Gosh, this would be a great project to work on." Um, kind of worked on it obsessively for a little bit, and then it snowballed into a company. Right. And so you said that you're hand-rolling reports. Um, what sort of questions were you getting from stakeholders that you were trying to like data-drive the answers to? Yeah, so one of the things that's, that's always, when you're in engineering, it's always a bit challenging, is that um, the work that, that engineers do, it tends to be invisible. And so when, you know, let's say you're, you're halfway through a development cycle, whether that be a traditional sprint or, you know, some people do it longer, like a month, you're halfway through and you get a stakeholder who... Um, who changes their mind. This is pretty frequent, but mm-hmm. one of the things that's invisible is the cost of doing that. Um, so my goal was to, to surface that cost so that we could talk a little bit more frankly about things like, well, it's fine if we want to change direction here. But there's a bunch of sunk costs in development, and we got to realize this will extend the deliverable timeline. Um, there's a certain type of like operational waste. Mm-hmm. And my goal was to encourage um, stakeholders to sort of think out from the user's perspective what we really want to build before we start so we could get these clean implementations that are so nice to have in engineering. Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. So it sounds like you were trying to, um, I mean, it, it sounds like your end game a little bit was pushing back on changing directions mid-sprint. Yes. Okay. How, how, do, <laughs> yes. You, how do you quantify the waste that's associated with that? So um, we, we tap into version control. Um, we use Git, you know, as the name Git Prime suggests. There's right. a ton of data in there. Um, but you sort of have to mine it out. So one of the things that we look at is um, how quickly code that's written gets rewritten. So um, Mm -hmm. this can be a good indicator of like a mid-implementation shift, right? If you drop in a bunch of stuff towards a feature and then that feature changes fundamentally, oftentimes that requires huge refactors. Mm -hmm. Um, And this kind of thing tends to be, I mean, we feel it in engineering, right? But it tends to be invisible to people outside of engineering um, who, who oftentimes, you know, don't necessarily have a clear read on engineering operations. Mm-hmm. So creating a shared language, which, you know, the best way that we found to do that is sort of draw a picture of what's happening. Um, and that shared visual language, which is based on data, can help um, just sort of show that, that yeah, it's cool. We can change directions, but there's, there's a cost, right? Mm-hmm. Engineering time is zero sum. And um, despite sort of industry trends, it's not great to continually work 68-hour weeks which can be the result of these frequent pivots. So it was, right. a, it was about you know, building a communication channel where we could all communicate a little more frankly there. Okay. Got as, it. 
has the demand for you know this transparency always been from kind of the business side or has it been engineers too like asking for i need a better way to communicate these problems yeah, we do get, um, so actually recently we've had a bunch of feedback from engineers who, um, who just sort of written in to say, thank you. <laughs> um, I think that it's, I think that it, yeah, it sort of starts at this layer of middle management who's responsible for, um, for things like predictability, right? Um, so they, they want to know that the engineers are, are like being successful. So if you've ever been an engineering manager, you, you get into this state where like, um, you want to be a good actor. Um, interrupting an engineer is inherently costly. So whenever I was managing engineers, I tried not to do that. Um, but not interrupting, interrupting somebody who's kind of stuck and, or waiting you know, on some stakeholder to clarify something is also pretty costly. And so you find yourself in this double bind. Um, and the best use case of our product is to resolve that sort of stuff. So to, make, to, to allow um, engineering leads to be, to be uh, timely and powerful advocates for their team, both by understanding what the team is up to and then being able to communicate that to stakeholders and kind of take the heat there. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you guys have uh, an ideology with respect to Agile? I mean, I know there's a lot of people that solve this kind of problem with Kanban or, or Sprint or, ex- or extreme programming. Do, does, does your tool sort of replace the need for an Agile methodology or does it augment the need for an Agile methodology? Wow, that's an awesome question. I, I kind of think it depends on how you use it. I mean, mm-hmm. from one perspective, more data is never a bad thing, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's just a question of whether or not you can parse it. So um, Agile, you know, the history of Agile is really fascinating. Um, Waterfall kind of was was great when it was great, except for that you got these, like, developers working in a cave for six months to a year right, and then yeah. coming out with a Shazam moment, right? And so Agile brought in... Um, brought in tight feedback loops, which are always really good. Um, today, I think that, um, that, I mean, we're big fans of Agile. We do tight development cycles, that sort of thing. I think one of the challenges with Agile is that you can get into a position where um, the burden of management gets externalized onto engineers. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, like, as an engineer, it's very hard to predict when things are going to be done. And that's almost more of a managerial role to do that. Um, mm-hmm. But... But there's this um, there's this phenomenon that sometimes happens in Agile where you, you kind of like make the engineers responsible for understanding when their work will be done, um, which is a task switching cost, right? Mm-hmm. Because now as an engineer, you have to both hold that higher level kind of foresty view and the trees view of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And the cognitive load there is pretty extreme. And so I think um, one of the problems with Agile is that, you know, there's nothing uniquely engineering about it. It's really yeah. awesome. It kicks the hell out of a waterfall, but it was imported from industrial, you know, uh, engineering, and there's there's nothing inherently software about it. Mm-hmm. And software teams have their own unique challenges. It's it's a creative discipline, right? And so if you if you start a painting, it's really hard to say when you'll be done with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the 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 dynamic where engineers need to predict when they'll be done with things mm-hmm. that are sort of opaque when you start, and then held held accountable for that prediction. Right. Um, is not super healthy. So what we view is this this plays well within Agile. Mm-hmm. Agile can still sort of give, you know, rough estimates for when things are can, will be done. Mm-hmm. But then um, there's also this level of, like, if you can see very clearly the work happening as it's happening, management can kind of take more of the ownership for deliverables. And mm-hmm. if they notice something going a little bit awry, start socializing that with stakeholders ahead of time, which really helps the team. Right. I'd agree. Uh 
So my my next question is about is about the overhead of having that situational awareness of of when something's going to get done in the larger roadmap for yeah. an engineer, and also the you know all the complications associated with architecting and designing a system. Yeah. Is it is is that not a good thing for an engineer to to have a little bit of accountability towards a deadline and towards the larger roadmap? Yeah, I think that you know that varies a lot um, depending on uh, on team dynamics. On our team, right. the way we tend to do it is we we do have a lot of um, like feature ownership at an engineer level, mm-hmm. just because our I mean our engineering team is super strong. Um, you know, our product is uniquely engineering. <laughs> So right. bringing in a lot of engineering influence there is really good. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's it's a delicate balance. At mm-hmm. the end of the day, it's just a delicate balance. You know, right. um, there's a that great Twitter account. I am developer recently had this tweet where he's just ranting about how um, about the additional overhead of making sure that Jira reflects what you're actually doing. Right. I think mm-hmm. that level of just like um, maniacal process accountability is a bit of a drag. Right. Um, but I do believe a lot in having um, a, an ongoing dynamic at the beginning of an implementation mm-hmm. between product and engineering where, you know, the specs are, are, are a collaborative effort. Right. <laughs> the other, uh, the other thing that I've, that I've noticed is, is a cultural thing. Um, you, you want to have accountability for the individual engineers, but the, yeah. in order to do that, the engineers need to trust that that accountability is not going to be weaponized. If they, yes. you know, since software engineering is a fundamentally a creative discipline, if a deadline is missed, then um, you know it, it can be t- it can be a real tough conversation when when that sort of issue is going to get weaponized against that engineer. Absolutely, and all too frequently that that I love the term weaponized by the way, mm-hmm. <laughs> because all too frequently this turns into well, you said it would be done Thursday. Yeah. Therefore, we're just going to you know hit you with the hammer and force you to work unbelievable hours. Yeah. That I, I think we should just do away with that. Well, However yeah, we get there. I mean, you, know? you and I have the luxury of sort of working in companies where the founders are engineers. Um, yeah, and and I and I found that working in a company where you can be product focused um, and long term focused has heavily correlated for me, at least, with having engineering or or product founders. Yeah. I mean, Absolutely. I'd say even in a company where I mean, our company isn't engineering, like that's not our product, but even our CEO, you know, his background is computer engineering. I mean, right. so even yeah. that background is super helpful. Yeah, yeah I'd be curious, you know, once I get into into my late 30s and into my 40s and have worked for CEOs that aren't first-time CEOs, if that trend changes a little bit, yeah. you know, and people get more used to building software, you know. Right, right. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, if you have... Um, if you have engineering awareness at the level of founders or, you know, somewhere, somewhere up there, you -hmm. actually just get a lot of compassion, Mm -hmm. which is great. And it makes it easier to communicate a lot of those things that are hard to communicate for engineers sometimes that Git Prime is trying to solve, you know, like, um, people understand that and can trust that more because they understand the engineering process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So what other sort of, uh, engineering management e type problems did you run into at your previous gig that Git Prime is trying to solve? Yeah, I think one of the things is um, that since engineering, you know, uh, is a bit misunderstood, I mean, the work that, that we all do is very abstract. It's, it's invisible. Mm-hmm. We're sort of the wizards of today, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a, there's a lack of understanding about what constitutes good requirements mm-hmm. and the notion that, um, that that should be ideally a dialogue. So you, you know, 
Um, one of the things that I think arguably Waterfall did pretty well was flesh out requirements. Like mm -hmm. the, the idea behind Waterfall was like, you got to know just everything that you're going to build down to a T and that's exactly what you'll get, right. which was a bit of a myth. Um, yeah. But in, in Agile, um, you know, in today's world, sometimes you run into these stakeholders who are sort of like, I don't know what we're building yet, just get started and we'll iterate into it, right? Mm -hmm. Which is like, it's sort of a kickback against that waterfall state. Um, yeah. And you really can't do that. Like, you got to start with some pretty good shared understanding of what the mission is and then, um, and then have uh, business requirements filled in by stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And I found that mm -hmm. um, teams that can do that really well you know, a lot of the problems, um, the quote-unquote problems of engineering, are actually more problems in the stakeholder engineer dynamic mm -hmm. where, um, where engineers are not totally clear on what to build. So they'll take a run at it. Like we had this one, this is a great story. I was working at this place a while back where we had a, um, a very senior member of, of the product team tell us that they thought the app needed a mood button. Like, that was mm -hmm. how the requirement came in. Take it in Jira, right? Right. So, like, a helpful engineer picks that thing up. He's like, all right, I'll take a run at it. Builds this thing. <laughs> Spends two weeks building this thing. <laughs> Ships it. And then, of course, the stakeholders look at it and they're like, well, that's not what I meant. Uh -huh. So yeah. that sort of cascade of, of miscommunication, I think, is one of the central problems that we should all kind of band together and solve mm -hmm. and, and, and get this idea that, you know, engineers are um, – they can pretty. We can pretty much build anything that um, the people can conceive of, mm -hmm. but you have to conceive in detail and then share that. Ideally, in in, in documentation, product documentation that's super robust. Right. Yeah. And that was going to be one of my next questions. I mean, you talked about code churn and other the part pieces of the data, but do you have experience and maybe even part of your product in terms of frequency of communication and? the methods of communication, I mean, that are lending to better relationships? Yeah, this is something that we're, um, we're currently prototyping to build into the app, um, looking at the conversations surrounding code. Uh, in general, I think that the, um, the way that this gets serviced the, the, in the most interesting fashion is the, this uh, tension right now between remote work or not remote work. Mm -hmm. um, everyone's super opinionated about this, and you know, our team is distributed. Our, our CTO is this awesome dude. Like if you've heard of GitFlow, uh, is Vincent, the guy who sort of conceived of that right, as our of CTO, course. and he's cool. in the Netherlands. Um, and so we communicate in a in a very um, well documented, written fashion, which has proven to be great for the the product and engineering dynamic. Yeah, um, and we're starting to see that trend, right? When you have when you have either a time zone lag or a um, or um, you know, you're just in different spots. Having things, having deliverables in writing, um, discussing them in writing, having a big socialization period before an implement implementation starts, and rolling that into product culture, it's not just good for remote teams, it's good for all teams. Because at the end of the day, you know, um, even if you've got 10 engineers on site, it's still 10 people at computers, whether they're there or at their house. Um, so, so having communication happen um, in a really well-documented way. I mean, we use the heck out of Slack. Um, one of the things that we've been very opinionated about, my, my co-founder works here with me in the office, but we'll start having a kind of a heavy, important discussion, and we'll look at each other and say, let's take this to Slack. And literally, go to Slack, go into the appropriate like product room, and start having the conversation there so that we include all everyone who's not you know physically in the office. 
Right. I think things like that are pretty key. Um, pretty key. And, and that's how it's part of how you create a, a, an inclusive engineering culture that's sort of asynchronous and, you know, all the modern stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And my experience, I mean, I, I think engineers on one level definitely understand that and can remember to go have that conversation on Slack. But yeah, it's really interesting to me to talk about changing the behavior or reminding non-engineering people about, yeah, why it's important to go from this really easy, you know, form of just speaking to yep. typing on a keyboard, why that's important, yep. you know? Yep. And we, we're institutionalizing that. I mean, even sales conversations, marketing conversations, um, you know, if you get a high degree of visibility, that's sort of, um, that people can drive themselves. Like you can just catch up on that in 20 minutes. Yeah. Everybody knows what's going on. Right. And engineers have great ideas about marketing and sales oftentimes knows what the next feature should be because they're hearing it a lot, you know? Yeah. Right. So it's sort of interesting because what we're talking about here is a, is a cultural issue, not really a technical issue. Uh, what would you say to an engineer out there that's working in a, in a company where remote work isn't a big thing and uh, moving conversations to Slack just isn't an option that's going to fly culturally. What, what should that engineer do? Yeah. Okay. That's a great question. I've been meaning to write up something on this. Um, so one of the biggest challenges is pushing back against requirements when you don't have um, structural power, right? Mm -hmm. Like word chart power. Yeah. Um, and the best thing to do there is, um, in my experience, has been you basically kind of use the Socratic method. You just keep asking questions, right? Mm -hmm. So like, like okay, so take the mood button example, which is kind of hilarious. So, you know, you say, okay, well, what would that look like? Right. Like, just draw it for me on a napkin. Yeah. And then you kind of walk that out, like, okay, well, okay, what happens when I do X? And just sort of keep asking questions until, until what you get is either a pretty decent set of requirements or the entire idea collapses in on itself. Right. And either one of those is good, huh. um, but but it can be tricky. Um, you know, engineers engineers tend to literally be the smartest people in the room, and um, I think it can be it can be pretty frustrating as an engineer when what you want is just to go like build stuff, yeah. and you're having to get into this process of like really. Uh, it requires a lot of patience to walk people out on that stuff. Um, right. So you know. Yeah, yeah, I mean, be a little I, more political, basically. I, yeah, and I mean, I know where I would get tripped up on something like that is that uh, at first I'd be inquisitive, but I think that uh, it's if I think an idea is dumb, then you're probably going to know within two or three minutes of the, of the <laughs> question just through my tone. But you're, to your point, it takes a lot of patience to sort of untangle that feature, and I guess it's less pain to try and be patient and to have that conversation up front than it is to spend two weeks building a feature that's going to get shipped and then never used. Yeah. Well, not totally. only in terms of requirements, but I think in my experience of you know doing client work where, where I had to do a lot of that, of sitting down with the client and like sussing out all of the details that they haven't thought about, that also really helped me communicate the cost of things, especially when it yeah. came to changes mid you know, mid project was like, okay, let's talk in detail about what that actually means. And then right. the light comes on in their head about, whoa, well, all of those little pieces conflict with what we've already built. So it's going to be longer, cost more money or something, you know? Yeah. And in my experience, the, the greatest engineering managers are the ones that take, take on a lot of that burden. Yeah. So that, and then the engineers get to, you know, keep engineering. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's like, it's a glorious thing to work for a really good, 
engineering manager. <laughs> yeah. Because right. they just absorb all of that stakeholder pressure and all the politics. And then what, you know, as, as the sort of membrane. And then what you receive is really kick ass requirements and a clear idea of what your day should look like. Yeah. I, I'm really interested in what you guys are doing because one of the other things that I notice a lot with engineering teams is the the engineering manager is generally sometimes just an engineer who's comfortable speaking, but not yeah. necessarily the best at communicating or understanding the business side of things, you know? Yeah, totally. And so, like, it's, it's just really interesting uh, having something that will try to you know, codify and quantify something that's more more instructive and more helpful to increase better communication, not just words yeah for volume's sake yeah and and you know engineering doesn't have a lot of great political tools like if you go to a marketing department they've got really robust data about what's converting and they can use that to go advocate for more budget yeah and you same with like a a sales team basically push buttons salesforce reporting you can see you know where people are getting stuck they can use that to put pressure healthy pressure on all sorts everywhere in the organization Yep. And if you've ever been to a board meeting or, or been the person in a board meeting uh, representing engineering, it's sort of this narrative song and dance. Yeah. Um, and that's really unfortunate because, you know, we I think we all want engineering to be a first-class citizen. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny how much we can quantify, but at the end of the day, without, like, the, the real reports and tools to prove what you're speaking about to business people, it's kind of yeah. just about trust. You know, it's like... Yeah. Hey, it's going to be two more months. Just trust me. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. sorry. Yeah. And in a situation where, um, where making those promises is inherently very hard because, exactly. because of the nature of the discipline. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think I was at a board meeting once and someone asked me how we were going to do some, do something. And I, and I said, you know, engineering manager, manager things. And I literally <laughs> waved my hands as I was doing yeah. it. Yeah. Just show jazz hands. It's like, fine. Oh, okay. Because I've been down that route of trying to explain exactly what we're doing, and it just yeah. it doesn't it doesn't communicate across sometimes. Well, so I, yeah, I think the, the winding back to your point, I think that trust is super important at that level. Yeah, yeah. But building trust is like that's where the devil's in the details. Yeah, you, know, you really have to be shipping and in delivering value, and that's that's hard to quantify. Right. It would also be super interesting to me, and I don't know if you've had use case for your product or not for this, but like to have a history of projects and like visually say, be like, okay, that project back there is kind of similar to this project we're thinking of doing, and here's how it actually went, and here's where it went off the rails, and here's why it's way more work and time than we're actually thinking that this new product project is going to be, because that's one of the things that I always am finding myself doing is someone will be like, hey, let's do this, this, and that, and I'll be like, well... Actually, it's a lot more work than you think, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. if you could point to like past projects that are similar and be like, hey, see how long mm-hmm. that thing took? <laughs> yeah. I think, I mean, we definitely want to get there. We also want to roll in um, a, a very deep level of detail about actors, right? So like, yeah. um, well, what is a, you know, how, how does um, working with a particular product owner impact our ability to estimate? That's a really interesting question. Mm-hmm. And we've had some of our teams sort of take the data that we're providing and manually look, you know, they sort of create groupings of the work that happened across product owners mm-hmm. and they can, they can communicate with those teams like, yeah, um, this person seems to be doing a great job of requirements. How about we all learn from them? And they have all this data to back it up. Um, so I think benchmarking historical feature implementations, um, looking at, you know, uh, being able to prove with data that like, 
a couple days worth of discussion on requirements pays dividends just empirically mm -hmm. fascinating stuff yeah you can almost envision as if that gets really really good having like a git prime profile as a vp of engineering to be like hey you know look at my you know right yeah. now on github it's you know how frequently i push yeah. code in my repos and stuff like that but yeah you could be like hey here are my all my repos and here are all my you know my Travis, yeah. if you replace LinkedIn for me, I'll buy you a bunch of beers. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah. I think we would be drowning in beer. Yeah. That's like the holy grail. Please. Yeah, I think, you know, the thing that's funny about engineering is you have all these different uh, variables. So you've got um, people who are the vanguard. They just go and they, they do the first push on implementation. It's quick, it's dirty, but it's not, uh, it's not long-lasting code. And then you've got these oftentimes more senior engineers who come in there, do a bunch of refactoring and lay down bedrock that lasts forever. Mm -hmm. And if you could get a read on that of who the players in the team are, I mean, you can, you can build some, a really powerful team that way. Mm -hmm. Just capitalizing on people's strengths, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Should we, Should we bring it back home? Yeah. All right. It's you, Miles. All right. Uh, so what are your engineering values? Um, yeah. Our, the top engineering values for us would be uh, requirements shouldn't be a struggle for engineers. Um, they're always a little bit of, of a, um, you know, we always want to see really drilled out requirements, but that burden lies in the stakeholder. So we just sort of, um, we think that the engineers should max should get to maximize their time building stuff and, and uh, get being masters of their craft. Um, along those lines, we tend to involve engineering early in the spec phase, so we don't. We've sort of destroyed the wall. Right. So the second thing here is there is no product team versus engineering team. We roll those together, and we're just like the product engineering team, which has mm -hmm. been really successful for us. Um, and then better to ask for forgiveness than permission. So um, you know, initially this was sort of a casualty of time zones, but then again we we came back and institutionalized it. You know, just take a shot. Mm -hmm. You know, take, take a swing at a feature rather than sort of waiting on stuff because it, in general, we're working with people we trust. Mm -hmm. All right. So that's a good segue into my, my final question, which is, do you have any great engineering war stories? <laughs> um, yeah, gosh, I bet we do. I mean, the, the mood button one is pretty fantastic, but that was not from this kind of, so from this, from this, uh, yeah, from this one, we have one sort of epic, long engineering war story. So in the beginning, um, we... <laughs> I feel like we need to turn on a fireplace and get some cocoa or something. <laughs> <Just> like... <laughs> in the beginning, in the, beginning. Was, the, the prototype and proof of concept was my co-founder and I um, just rolling out you know, a bunch of early stuff. And then um, we did that, sort of proved it out, um, you know, uh, got, our, got a round of funding and said, all right, let's build it for real. And so we went and got a contract team in who did um, who did a great job getting the early build out. Um, you know, the thing was was awesome. We shipped it. We got a customer, um, and then we we the ensuing um, the the ensuing implementations from there were this really interesting dance of um, cleaning up some of the early assumptions. You know, there was a little bit of technical debt in there, like you get and cleaning that up while balancing shipping new features mm -hmm. was just crazy difficult. And 
mad props to our engineering team because every single week there was this, there was sort of the shadow work that was happening mm-hmm. with a ton of stuff that shipped that was hyper visible. Right. And they have continued to do that every single week, every single month since then. Um, and so, you know, it's one of these stories that I guess you kind of, it's sort of a, you had to be there thing, but mm-hmm. I think that this is, this is a really good um, lesson for, for engineering teams since I'm now kind of on the stakeholder side. Right. Uh, you know, throw people a visible bone and you can do a lot of that cleanup work that we always want to do as engineers. Right. Uh, that, that balance, I mean, it's basically just almost a 50-50 division of work where there's foundational, whether it's R&D, whether it's technical debt, just tons of foundational work going on mm-hmm. with a bunch of things that are visible that are not necessarily high cost. Mm-hmm. Like the stuff that users want are like, you know, this button is hard for me to understand. So if you can balance those things and kind of do a major and a minor sprint is one way that we've done that. Like the minor sprint is all of these quality of life upgrades right. and the major sprint is just like, you know, laying track in the guts of the app. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's been super successful. So, so it strikes me from your story that um, you guys might be using Git Prime to build Git Prime. Oh, yeah. There's, there's a level of meta there that I'm yeah. jealous of. <laughs> yeah, it does It does sort of feedback on itself because then we look at these these reports and we're like, gosh, you know it would be really great in here. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That is very cool. All right, Travis, well, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you guys. Thanks for listening. Find us at startupcto.io or on Twitter at startupcto.io. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next episode.